Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around security for the last 20 years. I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I always intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with the Security Architecture Podcast. I have a pleasure today, Dr. Abhi from Reliance. Can you please tell us about yourself and the company and what do you guys do? Definitely. Lovely to be here and thanks for having me. Like you said, my name is Zabi. I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of Reliance AI. Reliance AI is a machine learning-based technology SaaS platform that helps organizations build their entire global privacy and data governance program. In simple terms, we like to say we offer trust as a service with a deep technical differentiation. So with Reliance, you can actually deal with privacy compliance globally, data protection, data governance, and all of those compliance and operational activities that you need to deal with on a daily basis with a deep ML as your foundation for the platform. So that's what we do in a nutshell. I'm sure there are quite a lot of people asking questions about what to do with ChatGPT and prevent people to putting all the information there or create policies. It's one of the most common heard questions these days. Isn't it fascinating that we create technologies to help us, and then we're trying to figure out how to secure them? I think it's been probably the biggest, I would say, function of human endeavor and curiosity, where we almost take the next step and then figure out, was that a safe thing to do, the most holistic thing to do, and then try to work backwards? For the longest time, I used to look at it negatively, and now I feel like that's just how we are, and hopefully we can learn from enough steps that we take that next time we can think of privacy and security a long time we take the jump as well. Yes, privacy is definitely very interesting. And I think especially when we grew up, it was a bit different. But when our kids grew up you know, right now, they don't even have the concept. It's all connected, all shared. They share the pictures right away. There is not really understanding if the pictures belong to them, belong to us. So it's definitely an important part. Yeah, definitely. I think our lives are more digitally entrenched than ever before. And even in the last 10 years, I imagine like the next generation for the next 50 decades will have a very different digital footprint and outlook than we had when growing up where internet was just happening and our outlook was very different than today, if you will. And I definitely think about this quite a bit. Yes, I think we watch World Terminator and we were all concerned about AI. <laughs> so the company is relatively new, around two and a half years ago. And I'm wondering what was going on in your head and what was the motivation to actually start the company? Is it a problem to solve? You're fed up with the issues we see with customers. My story is actually very interesting, at least with Reliance. And I'll give you the short summary version of it. So it was late 2019. My previous startup was getting acquired. And like many other founders, once you're at an exit journey, you go into soul searching mode, figuring out what you want to do next. So I was actually obsessed with a generic personal question of mine and interest, which is, are we making slower progress in society? because everything is very hyper-specialized in various domains. And like in between 1920 to 1970s, you used to have a lot of polymaths in the world and those don't exist anymore. So anyway, I spent a few months because I had some time researching this only to realize that it might actually be true and I won't bore you with the details of the research. But then that is the core reason that I was personally obsessed with working on a 
generational problem at the intersection of two completely different domains. And in a parallel timeline, my co-founder, who's a lawyer, a privacy practitioner, had built privacy programs for 15 years and was really frustrated with the lack of good tooling in the space. Then one day we just happened to talk about it and went deep into the rabbit hole. And I realized that privacy was one of the most foundational issues of our lifetime, especially looking 50, 100 years in the future. And if I had to spend my life working on something meaningful, it was it. The second big thing was the principles of machine learning, AI, and compilers, which is what I spent most of my life building as an engineer, were not applied to this domain at all. Like the status quo was privacy is a data problem, but data is only a side effect of code, and nobody was thinking about the route at which data processing comes alive. So that was my personal motivation of wanting to work on a cross-functional problem, and privacy is very much at the intersection of AI and law and ethics and regulation, and people don't understand how to grapple with this. So the uniqueness, the vastness of the problem, and the difficulty and challenges was the one that really attracted me in my journey and wanting to build Reliance. And so far it has been, I would say, both challenging but exciting for two and a half years to build that way. So you have an idea, you have a partner, and the next one is idea validation. So you need to go to different people and understand, would you buy my new baby I'm trying to create? Tell me about the process. So for Reliance, we had two unique advantages. Number one, me and my co-founder did have a very opinionated take on what we wanted to build. And the reason was because my co-founder was an operator in the space, and I had this a very unique technology take to it that nobody else was doing. So we felt very confident that even though we take an opinionated take, we feel we're coming at it from a reasonable angle. Then there is the point of doing real validations and getting outside your own head and seeing if other people think so. So actually, before we incorporated the company, we spent three to four months actually speaking with different potential buyers and prospects and just having some basic mocks and a vision of an idea and saying, hey, can you please, Evgeny, give me 15 minutes? I just want to show you something on what I have in mind and why it's reasonable. You tell me whether it's useful or not. If you think it's not useless, you won't hear from me again, but please just listen to me for 10 minutes. And so we talked to a lot of potential buyers and prospects in the industry. I would say over 52, if I remember the count, 52 or 53, and we got the same patterns of resonating consistent feedback that there was a pain. And the approach that we talked about seemed to light up their eyes, assuming it worked. And so that was the twofold validation before we decided to say, okay, it makes sense. The market makes sense. There's a big pain. We can actually build a 10x product, so let's go do it. I think our industry, the vendor industry, is built on the idea they always want to sell to a CISO. And I'm wondering, are you talking to a privacy officer or are you talking to a CISO when you're pitching your idea? It's a bit of both. So I think we're talking a lot, I would say 60 to 70% times privacy and then 30 to 40% times the CISO's office. The fundamental unique thing about privacy in this industry is Privacy is a little bit like a square peg in a round hole, meaning it is not just the legal person's problem. It is not just the security person's problem or the CISO's office. And it's not just an engineering problem. It is a very cross-functional problem. So like the fundamental first principle is, let's say there were no vendors in the industry providing any solutions around privacy compliance, data protection. Even then, if every company built something on their own, one 
truth has to be followed in every company. And the truth is privacy legal, security and CISOs and engineering must collaborate in order to even do the basic workflows of privacy compliance, even if you didn't care about privacy. And that fundamental first principle is the reason that Reliance actually has what I would call a most cross-functional sales motion and people to talk to and impress because privacy just concerns everybody. And so we have taken a very cross-functional path, but we're talking to both privacy legal and security. In fact, I don't think for all the customers that we can talk about publicly, we've ever made a sale without getting both of those parties aligned on the value of Reliance. I think this is important information. I think our industry is going towards more collaboration. And I think it's very important that all the these functions and groups talk to each other because if not, there is no way we're able to build anything big. How was to find people? Because every vendor I'm speaking to, especially the established vendor already, say, oh, yeah. call calling doesn't work. It's so hard to find people. We have an amazing product. If you just spend five minutes with us, they will definitely know they need it. How was your experience to actually convincing people to talk to them? I would say definitely cold calling doesn't work, at least calling in the literal sense. But you have to start with that. And I think for our journey, we spend a lot of time up front figuring out the articulation of what it is that we wanted to build, why it was important. And then at some extent, you do have to start cold. You have to reach out. If you and I had never spoken, I would reach out to you on LinkedIn, send you a short message, try a couple of times, maybe ask for a warm intro if I see somebody in common with us. And there is that seed start problem that you do have to do, but we did reach out to many people. And in fact, for our industry, it's even more difficult because privacy people don't like being bothered <laughs> because they're privacy experts. So you, know, you can't even go call them. But I think it starts out with getting a few people the right message. Maybe you reach out to 10 people, two people will respond. But if you really have something differentiating, then it catches their attention. And then there's word of mouth spread. So for us, a lot of our early growth did start with cold outreach, but then we got good tailwinds of people talking to other people and saying, okay, this is interesting and you should take a look at it. Well, this is interesting, you should take a look at it. And then incrementally, we build on that motion. But I think doing it in the right way with the right intent is also important. The other thing I would just add one comment there is in the early days, we also spent time just asking for feedback. Like, I was okay if you didn't buy my product, you didn't care about it, but you were a practitioner in the industry. And I was generally trying to make a difference into building something in this space. So that's fine. If you never talk again, just give me your input. And I think as long as you approach it carefully and you're genuine about it, you get at least 20% of time. And that is hugely valuable. Are you able to find any design partners as part of this outreach? 100%. We started with a ton of design partners as part of this outreach. And it worked for us because we had a more technology-focused approach to a problem that everybody had a lot of pain point towards. So for example, as an analogy, Reliance does have this BlackBerry to the iPhone moment where there is no keyboard. So for a second, it takes a minute to understand what, there's no keyboard? What do you mean? And then you realize, oh, you can do it by touch. So I think we had a little bit of that element in our technology that sparked the curiosity, which then led to them saying, uh-huh, I get it now, and I'll give you some more of my time. And you just incrementally build it. So you have idea validation. I'm guessing you raised money as well. You went to hire people. 
Let's talk about the culture. Let's talk about how you find the people that are going to be there for a long time and going to adapt whatever the culture you're building. I would say out of all the things that startup founders have to do, hiring is definitely probably more difficult. It's probably more difficult than even building the damn thing uh, at times. So I completely agree with you. Two things happened with us. When you start, the first thing you really need is strong engineers. And I was really lucky that almost everybody who was working for me in my previous startup just came over and started working with me. So we were lucky to get our first phase of engineering hired very quickly within the first month. And the reason I mention it, because that goes back to my point about your question about culture, is that you have to have a set where, for me, there are a couple of things. One, you have to give people a lot of responsibility, but you give them authority along with it. You cannot half-ass it. It doesn't work. And so we always try to build the culture that way, and which is the only reason I believe some of the people who chose to still honor me by working with me when I started the new startup, especially on the engineering side, probably relied on that value. Second, I think that eliminate what I would call emotional baggage, meaning everybody has different perspectives. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree. We have different cultural backgrounds, different experiences. And one of the main cultural things of leaders should be to take away the emotional baggage. So if you and I are going to have a design discussion and you don't like my immediate idea, your attention, Evgeny, should be around, okay, how can I provide more objective points to prove Abhi wrong, but not worried about, oh my God, I got to talk with Abhi. I'm feeling so stressed about this conversation because you know his opinion is slightly different. My opinion is slightly different. It's all that extra baggage emotion. But could it be also that you're hiring a type A personality and everybody very confident in their opinion? Like, no, 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 this is how we need to do this. Like, how do you deal with this type of people? You have to hire. And I think sometimes, to be honest, type A plus sometimes very smart people do have this personality. I think we want to have type A people who do have strongly held beliefs, but they have strong humility to go with it so that they can say, I have a strong belief about it, but I can loosely let go of it if I have a counterpoint. And so we look of that consistently. When it comes to type A personality and assholes, we have a zero tolerance for that. And not only at my current startup, but at my previous startup, we have, and I have personally fired some of our top performers because they were purely assholes and they wouldn't fit the culture. And sometimes it's painful to do it, but I have done it twice already. And we have had enough proof to our companies is that you might be the best person, but if you're an asshole, you don't belong here, period, no matter what we have to lose on that journey. Between all the people and building the product, you probably have a lot of tasks. How is task delegation? How task prioritization is working for you? I think it is one of the most painful. And to be honest, if I said I'm particularly good at it, I'd be lying. It's one of the personal challenges that I have. What I tend to do is... I'm a compulsive note taker, so I try to put everything in organized buckets and go reflect. So I would say it's a very hard thing to do. And I don't think I have a silver bullet answer. You just go from different tasks and try to ask yourself, is this the best use of my time? Can somebody else be doing it? And am I truly adding value? And if the answer is yes, you do it. Otherwise, you drop it. Second thing is, I think in order to really good at prioritization, and I have made this mistake, so I'm only learning. 
you need to carve out time for reflection. And I feel that's the most underrated piece of task prioritization. And I'm speaking from a founder's point of view here, obviously. As a founder, you're going to decide from what is the color of this pixel to like our HR strategy to how do we get this deal done? And the next call will be a deep technical architecture about our ML models. And you literally go in these calls 30 minutes by 30 minutes. And I feel like at the end of the day, at the end of the week, you need to carve out time to just reflect because that's when you learn and say, okay, can I get better prioritization? Can somebody else do it? Can I let go of this? And that's the only way to get better. And I wouldn't say I'm perfect by any means in any of that regard, but continuing to learn. So let's go deep on the selling part. As a founder and the CEO, you're the first salesperson in the company. So you're in charge of selling your baby. One point, you have to kind of go back and let other smart people to start take care of selling your baby. How do you approach this? How do you let go? How do you teach them? How do you trust them? I think there are two pieces to it in my mind. One is very qualitative and measurable, which typically a lot of go-to-market teams will call enablement and process. When you build something and you're selling it as a founder, you're so deeply embedded but that sometimes you're not conscious about what is it that you're doing well, that when you tell somebody else, you don't even tell those things, but they're very important. And so I think getting down to this, it's even though it's painful, you have to write down and document and really reflect on how to enable, why do we sell these things? Ask enough five questions for every sales motion that you do and document and capture that in enablement and process and plan ahead before you get a bunch of salespeople so that there's something to run with. That's the one quantitative piece. The qualitative piece is just having the right type of salesperson in the journey and where you are. So you need to have a different personality when you're zero to five million, a different one between five and 25, a different one between 25 and 50, because the maturity of your product, the maturity of your business varies. And getting the right kind of person and personality type, because you can't change people's personality types. You have to be diligent in the hiring process early on. And then those are the two main components. I think that's how you teach. You can spend too much time not letting go, if you will. And in the past, I think I have been very much guilty of that. But now we just have to come to the agreement that, okay, here is our system. Here is the why. Sometimes it's okay even if you don't give them the exact script. But if you explain the why, people will find their own way of expressing to it, but that will resonate. And I think those are the two key pieces to continue to scale up to other people. If you can go back to the beginning of building the startup, would you do anything different? And if yes, what would you do different? I find this very hard because you can't really go back. But if I were to answer, I would say, number one, I would hire an internal talent team much, much sooner than I thought when I did hire. If you're an early stage founder and you see leading indicators of product market fit, go hire a talent team because you can save a lot of time, a lot of money, and also a lot of pain in getting the right talent because third-party recruiters cannot do the same justice as you who understand, especially from a cultural standpoint that you ask. Second, in the world of remote culture, try to communicate more and more by drawing ideas. I think that's like my biggest learning because Words get interpreted differently by every individual, whatever, whether strategic or tactical. The more you can draw, the better. And then spend more time being very explicit about the kind of people and culture you want to set and reflect consistently about it. I think those are the three things I would spend more time on. If you need to recommend 
to somebody new starting the company? Would this going to be the three things you recommend or something else? If you ask me the question that way, I would say one other element, although still true, and I'll add one or two other elements. Number one, really be honest to yourself to find true leading indicators of product market fit. It is, especially if you're building an enterprise SaaS, which is what security solutions tend to be, it is easy to hack or lie yourself to about real value to our customers because you might get a few couple intros, your venture capitalists might introduce you to somebody. That is not true validation. In fact, your first couple of sales should be nobody had to do anything. You had a code outreach and you did sell something. That's the data point you can trust. And the second biggest thing is prioritize efficiently. I feel like very quickly, if your startup is, starts to work and people appreciate, you have this challenge where you're juggling three things. New innovative ideas, current customer asks and pains, and any technical debt or things you are building up as technical debt over a period of time. And you have to always juggle these three balls. Make sure that you're giving thought in every quarter planning process, whether it's sales or engineering, and you're tipping attention as all three balls. So you don't drop anyone for too much for too long because it will come to bite you. Those will be my two other pieces of advice. Good approach and very specific approach. Thank you very much. We're going to transition to something I call a dark side. This is where we talk about failures and stuff that didn't work because we all know that the work is not always pink and not everything else is working. You already mentioned some things. Maybe you can share some stories about failure customers, something didn't went as you expected. Maybe you learned from it, maybe you didn't. Yeah, so I think from customers and sales standpoint, I think for a founder in early stage, if you ever lose a deal that you think you would close, and it happens to everybody, no matter what you're building, those are the ones that feel most painful. And thankfully for Reliance, we haven't had many of those instances, but we've had one or two. And I think the learning from there was we did not value sell enough. And that was like a big moment of, okay, you feel like you're a failure. Second big thing is when you scale very quickly because you're growing, there are times when you, and this happened to me in my previous company, not really Reliance, you sometimes get disconnected from the field because you're growing so fast and you go from five people to 10 to 25 to 60 to 80. And it takes a lot of time to realize, which could be sometimes months or years before you get to the point on like, I'm actually on a different planet than the rest of my team members. And I have failed to build the communication ladders throughout the journey to have that strong sense of alignment on what it is that we're doing because you're trying so much to live in the future. And I think those are the two things I would say that I've definitely failed at in the past. And now at Reliance, make sure I'm hyper diligent of thinking about that upfront on a continuous basis. You already mentioned a bit about this. When you have a personally bad day, what do you do? How do you go back to yourself? You mentioned about reflection, but I'm not sure. Maybe there's something else, meditation, running. I think for me, it's definitely meditation. A little bit of meditation combined with yoga. I try to do that because it just helps me control my breath and come back to grounding. And the second biggest hack for me personally, I won't even say a hack, but something I think about. So I did not grow up with a lot of resources and I came from a tough background. It's nice to just settle down, get outside your head and look around to the family, the food you have, the resources you have, your spouse or kids or parents, and just recognize that however bad the day is going on, you still are not worrying about your next meal. And there are people in the world who don't have guarantees about that. 
and it suddenly instantly makes you feel much better and get out of your head. Because I've seen those situations in the past and I was like, are you worried about dinner? Will you have dinner, food to eat, a fundamental basic human need? No, you're fine. Shut up and go back to work. This is a very, very sound advice. Thank you very much. Amazing episode, amazing story. I really like to hear what you're saying. Good luck on Monday and there is a sandbox and we probably talk with you after. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Evgeny. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll hear you on the next episode. Thank you.